But just about 20 years ago, I was on a camping trip in the mountains of central China. On that camping trip, I think we broke a record for modes of transportation. We took bikes uh, to a metro station, took a metro uh, to a train station, took a train out into the country where we got off and uh, hopped on another bus, took that to a village, got in the back of pickup trucks, rode those up a mountain to the side of a lake, and then got on a boat, rode that across the lake, and then hiked to our camping site. And on that entire journey, it was cold and it was rainy. We were wet. Our gear was soaked. And on the first night, we discovered that our tents were not equipped to handle the rain that we were encountering either. And as we all sat there shivering and soaked to the bone, one of the Chinese brothers who had camped in that area before said that he had uh, one time walked by an old abandoned schoolhouse. He said it was a couple of miles away, maybe it was still there and we could find shelter. And so we packed up our gear and hiked a couple more miles, found the dilapidated schoolhouse, which praise the Lord had enough walls and enough of a roof left that we could seek shelter and set up camp in there for the night. So as we do that, we, we arrived, we were cold, we were shivering, we were drenched, we were tired. And we went right to work building a, a campfire under the confines of uh, that roof and those walls that we enjoyed. We built the campfire right there on the concrete floor of the old schoolhouse. I've never been so happy in my life to have a campfire. It was so warm, so enjoyable, so joyful, so beautiful, life-giving. And then boom, it exploded. Everything went dark. Coals were raining down from the sky, getting in people's clothes. People were ripping off their sweatshirts and their jackets and screaming. There was pandemonium running into each other into the dark. Like, what happened? Did somebody throw an aerosol can? Like, what did, what did we burn? What went on? So confused and slightly unnerved, we moved the campfire over a little bit and rebuilt the campfire and got that going again. Ah, oh, yes, the warmth, the joy the beauty. Boom! It blew up again. Once again, coals raining down. It went dark. We figured we'd pack it in for the night and just go to sleep. I remember getting back from that trip back to the city where I was living on the east coast of China, calling my parents and recounting the story to my dad, who was a general contractor and had been around construction sites his whole life. And as I'm telling the story, I get to the part and I said, yeah, we found shelter. We got into this old schoolhouse and we built the fire right there on the concrete floor. And he started laughing. And he goes, I said, what are you laughing about? He said, did it blow up? It's like, yeah, it blew up. He failed to explain this to me at some point in my childhood. And he said, yeah, genius, you can't build a fire on that old concrete. Again, I think there's been some uh, advances made with, with some newer uh, concrete making it more heat resistant. But my dad knew some of that old concrete. I don't even know what it is. Some of you engineers can explain it to me later. But it's something to do with the, the, the water vapor trying to escape or the lime expanding or something. But if you build a fire on that context, it will explode. My dad found that humorous. <laughs> Regardless of the reason, get this. What was beautiful and warm and joyful and life-giving became dangerous and destructive in the wrong context. And friends, that, in a sense, is what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the seventh commandment. You shall not commit 
adultery. The seventh commandment deals with adultery and therefore it deals with marriage and with sex. My question as we look at that this morning is whether or not we have it in the proper context where it's meant to be of warmth and joy and beauty and life-giving or whether it's a weapon of mass destruction. Are you properly esteeming your relationships and your own purity in a way that the fire remains in the context that keeps it joyful and life-giving or in context that makes it destructive and dangerous? Put positively, here's what I want to argue from the seventh commandment this morning is that God delights in and provides for your purity and fidelity. God delights in and provides for your purity and your fidelity. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. If you're just joining us this morning, we're on a a series in the Ten Commandments where we get to the Ten Commandments and we slow down and we're taking a, a week on each one of them and we find ourselves in the Seventh Commandment this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And again, if you're if, you, if you've been here, you know we, we've been ask, trying to ask and answer the same three questions with each one of these Ten Commandments. What kind of a God would command such a thing? What kind of, of a people would need such a thing commanded? And then thirdly, how do we obey the command? What kind of a God would command this? What kind of people would need this commanded? What kind of obedience would satisfy this command? Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That's our text, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Question number one, what kind of a God would give this command? What kind of a God would give this command? I want us to see two things or consider two things about the character of God here is that one, a God who would give this command is a faithful God and a providing God. A faithful God and a providing God. This, first of all, he's a faithful God. This seventh command is comprised of two words, just like last week as Garrett was preaching about murder, the, the, the two, it was two Hebrew words, no murder. The same thing we have here in the seventh command is it's two words in Hebrew, no adultery. Adultery is unfaithfulness. It's a sexual relationship between a married person and, and Paul is to understand there when we say marriage, we're understanding marriage biblically defined to be the relationship between one husband and one wife. And so adultery is a sexual relationship between a married person and someone who is not the spouse of that person. God commands faithfulness in marriage because he is faithful. As we keep going in the book of Exodus, when you get to Exodus chapter 34, and God is uh, this big self-revealing moment of God where he's giving the, the two new tablets to Moses, and he passes before Moses, and it says that he proclaims this about himself. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's part of who he is. That's his characteristic one of his prime attributes is that he is a god of faithfulness lamentations 3 23 says this the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness 
He is a God who is faithful. And so what he commands of us is something that he possesses perfectly. He is a God, therefore, who can be trusted. He's not a God who, who will say one thing and then, not, and then do another. He won't make a vow and then not prove good on it. He won't make a promise and not fulfill it. Our God is a God who never grows weary. He never gets distracted. He is never tempted to act in a rash way or in rash frustration. He's never a God who is overcome by his sinful passions. He is a God perfectly faithful. Only a God who is perfectly faithful would command this of his people. For us, likewise, to be faithful in our relationships. And this, friends, is why we have hope. As you see, again, the reason we start with this question in the Ten Commandments series is because each commandment is revelation. It's, it's revelation. It's also confrontation, which is why we will ask in a minute what kind of people need this commanded. But we start and say, when God gives a command, he's revealing something about who he is. He's revealing something about his character. And our God is a God who is perfectly faithful. This is why we have hope. Because even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Praise God. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. There's not one of us here this morning, regardless of what your background is and regardless of what you've done and regardless of what you've struggled with, who doesn't fit into that category, faithless. And yet he remains faithful. The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to get it all together. He didn't wait for us to to, to clean ourselves up enough that he might come down and love us. No, while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Praise God that we have a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. And that's the good news of Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to to, uh, thinking about Christianity, the good news of Christianity, the entire story runs along those lines of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, right? There is a faithful God who created us to know him and to love him and to worship him and to exist in perfect relationship with him. And yet we, in our unfaithfulness, we have sinned and we have rebelled against that good faithful God. Faithful God, unfaithful people rebelling against him and walking away from him. And yet, that doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. God, the faithful one, sent Jesus to be faithfulness manifest, to to be faithfulness incarnate, to live a perfect life as 100% God and as 100% human, to live life as a human that he might represent us and then die to satisfy God's wrath. So that God, so he died taking our unfaithfulness on himself, having lived perfectly faithfully, that God might be proven to be the ultimate faithful one who can be both just by punishing sin and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ by saving us. The story of Christianity runs along those lines of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Friends, a faithful God has made a way for you to know him and to receive his faithfulness as your own by turning from your unfaithfulness and trusting in Christ. Praise God. So he's faithful, and he calls his people to faithfulness as well. But listen, it's not just merely that. It is that, but it's it's not merely that, as if he calls us to faithfulness just for the sake of faithfulness. No, he calls us to faithfulness because he desires good for us. He desires joy for us. We've said this before in the series, but God knows that we always locate pleasure in the paths of pain. 
And so he says, don't go that way, go this way. That's why the Bible says that God's rules and his statutes and his commandments, they are good, they're beautiful, they're life-giving. Because he says, I know you want to run that way, let me reroute you and send you this way. God gives us his commands, he gives us this command because he desires good for us. He wants us to be faithful because he knows faithfulness is what will give us life and joy and peace and happiness. He knows that unfaithfulness, breaking of covenant, violation of proper boundaries, objectification and being objectified, objectified uh, abuse and being abused, all of that leads to pain and heartache and, and, and sorrow and carnage and sadness in our lives. God doesn't want obedience from us merely. He wants obedience for us because he has something for you if we would live faithfully and trust him and follow him. His ways are good. His rules are right. His commands give us life. So when you see that commandment, you shall not commit adultery, think of the God who would give that is a faithful God who has done nothing but act faithfully and he wants faithfulness for you because it's good for you. It's good for me. Second, I said he's a faithful God. He's also a providing God. So the God who would command this is a God who is, who is faithful. He's also a God who provides only a God who provides all we need when it comes to sexual desire can command this of us. And by this, I mean two things. One, he provides a proper context for sexual intimacy. And two, he provides strength for purity. So God provides both of those things. A God who would say, you shall not commit adultery, you shall live faithfully. And we're going to flesh out all of what that means uh, in a minute. But, but a God who would command that is a God who provides the proper context for sexual intimacy. And he provides strength for purity. And that first angle there that God provides the proper context for sexual intimacy reminds us that, that God is not prudish. God is pro-sex. And in marriage, he provides a relationship and circumstance where desires can be realized in the proper context. God created marriage as a, a blessing and created sexual desire as a good thing to be fulfilled in that context. We must mention this because it, this is so important because so many of us have felt the cumulative weight over years of hearing the don'ts and the shouldn'ts. And listen, there are things that we ought not do and there are things, ways that we shouldn't behave. But God invented marriage and intimacy as a good gift and he delights in it. So he's a God who provides proper context. And then the second angle on that is that he's a God that provides strength for purity. Again, we must mention this because I know there are some in this room who desire to be married and that desire has not been realized. Or others who for one reason or another don't see yourself being married or remarried. Friends, God provides strength. Where he calls us, he provides strength. He will always give us the grace to go through the things that he's calling us to. We can be faithful because our God is faithful. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We all struggle. We all face the same temptations. It's been the, the, the case all throughout human history. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability 
but with every temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, we have to cling to that promise. God has told us that he will provide for us as we pursue purity and holiness. We'll consider more practical application in our third and final point this morning, but for now just realize that God who would command you shall not commit adultery is a God who provides, and he is a God who is faithful. He provides a context for sexual intimacy, and he provides strength and escape in the face of temptations outside of that context. This is a picture of what it means to follow God. He is a God who calls us, and he always provides where he calls us. We can follow him, and we can trust him. This is what kind of a God would command such a thing. We could say more, but number two, what kind of people would need this command? What kind of people would need this command? We see the kind of God who would ask it. Number two, what kind of people would need it? Well, the kind of people who uh, would, would need this, if, if, if we see that the God who would ask it is faithful and providing, then it seems obvious that the people who would need it are people who are unfaithful and, and people who, who, who distrust or are dissatisfied in or who aren't taking hold of God's good promises and provision. But the problem is far more pervasive than what we might think by looking at Exodus chapter 20. It's not just the married among us who are in dangerous territory here, it's, it's all of us. As with murder last week, adultery is deeper and darker than the physical act of adultery. Look at Matthew 5 again. This was read earlier for us, but Matthew 5, I'll read again, 27 to 30. This is where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about some of these commands in the law. And he's uh, saying, you, you've heard it said this, but I'm, he's taking it deeper and driving it towards the heart. And so he says in Matthew 5, verse 27, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your, eye, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Just as murder is the, the bloom of anger, so adultery is, is the fruit of lust in our hearts. Lust is looking at someone with sexual desire that is inappropriate or outside of God's intended context for sexual fulfillment. So if someone looks at someone other than their spouse with sexual desire, they are committing adultery in their hearts. What Jesus does with these commands, especially do not murder and do not commit adultery, is so huge for us. Garrett mentioned this last week, but I just want to point it out again. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may have had the thought, just like I did when I wasn't a Christian, that, that you're in good standing with God because, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I've never, maybe I've never, I've never committed adultery. Not that bad. But listen, what Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, yeah, those are true. That's the Ten Commandments. That's what, Moses, what I'm saying to you is that all of that starts in the heart. All of that starts in the heart. Yeah, you've never committed adultery. Have you ever looked lustfully at another human being? Yeah, you've never committed murder. Have you, have you ever been angry with somebody? Jesus drives it deeper into our hearts and, and, and shows that our problem is a heart issue. And what, what I want us 
all of us to, to conclude from that, Christian or not, is for all of us to put our hand up and say, yep, guilty. You can't get saved if you don't know you're in danger. You need to get lost before you can get found. And I hope that all of us can, can see that we are sinners. All of us are lay bare guilty before a holy God. Because the standard isn't, did you murder somebody or not? The standard isn't, did you rob a bank or not? The standard isn't, are you, are you better or worse than some, some despot somewhere who's killing people? That, that, that's not the standard. The standard is a holy God, and before him, we are all laid bare. None righteous. No, not one. But that's where the good news of Christianity comes in. This is why the good news doesn't have to do with, with new actions merely, but with a new heart. That's why the Bible, when it speaks of being saved or becoming a Christian, speaks of, a, of regeneration, of a new birth, of being born again, of having a new heart, having a new nature. God gives that to us when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ. Our sin is imputed, is credited to him, and then his righteousness is credited to us. You don't, need, you don't need better motivation. You don't need somebody to convince you of something. You don't need to work your way to God. What you need is a new nature, and I can't give that to you. No preacher can give that to you. No church attendance record can give that to you. No, no obeying the rules and not doing that and doing this can give that to you. What we need is God, by his spirit, giving us new hearts and new natures. And friends, the only way to do that is to say, God, I turn from my sin, and I trust in you. I trust in Jesus, and I want his righteousness as my own. What do I need to do? I need to believe in his name and trust him. Friends, that's the good news of our faith. God will give you a new heart. So, so having put all of us on alert there of saying, you shall not commit adultery isn't just for the married or isn't just for the people who are maybe flirting with that right now in their minds or who are towing a, a dangerous line or who have uh, committed that already. It, it, it's not just, it's, it's, it's every single one of us sitting in these pews. And so having put us all on alert, let's get a little bit more specific. What kind of a people would need this command? Let me suggest five categories that scripture talks about with reference to a, adultery and lust. Five categories. What kind of a people would need this? Well, it's people who can be unrighteous. It's people who can be unrighteous, live unrighteously. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 Paul says or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God Adultery points to the faithfulness of God and it points us to the faithlessness of humanity on our own. But praise God that he pursues us and he saves. And indeed, we can turn and find grace and mercy in Christ. And so we can fall into any of these categories and repent and he is ready to welcome us. But the point of this passage is that if we persist in that, if we persist in those actions, if we persist in the sins of idolatry and sexual morality and adultery and homosexuality and 
thievery and greed and drunkenness and all those things, if we persist in that unrepentance in any of those areas, that is a sign of major concern and it is a sign of abiding unrighteousness. So the people who need to hear that command is us who are tempted and who are faced with living unrighteously. Second, what kind of people need this command? It's the people who can be unrighteous. It's also people who can be unloving. Unrighteous, unloving. Listen to Romans 13, verse 9. For the commandments, Paul here has in mind the Ten Commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says uh, uh, adultery is a, a lack of love. Lust is a lack of love. There is a, a selfishness and a self-focus at the heart of the sin of adultery and lust. I am more important than you. We, we use and abuse and objectify and act without thinking of the consequences for ourselves and the consequences for those around us because we want what we want. I want what I want. I want the attention because it feeds me. I, I want to feel powerful. That makes me feel alive. I, I, I love the pursuit. I love to be pursued. It makes me feel valued. It makes me feel attractive. It makes me feel alive. What kind of people need this command? It's people who can be unloving. It's self-focused. This is how it makes me feel. This is what I want. Paul says we could sum up all of these commands and love your neighbor as yourself. Who needs this command? It's those who can be unrighteous. It's we who can be unloving. And it's we who can be unbridled. Unbridled. Unrighteous. Unloving. Number three, unbridled. People who have unbridled desire. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin starts with desire that entices us. This is what temptation is, and then when that temptation is latched onto, your desire gives birth to sin. Obviously, there's a point where we could say no, because Paul said there's always, God's always going to give you a way of escape. But when our desires are left in the driver's seat, that's where we're in trouble. Friends, you can't, you can't, we can't live life for satisfied earthly desire. When I was, I think when I was in college, there was a, uh, a, a book, uh, this was when I was in college, there was a book that uh, was kind of caught on like wildfire and among a lot of college students at the time, and, and the book really had, uh, it, it was commending uh, pursuing satisfied desire in your life. That, that's the pinnacle of what it means to be human, it was especially aimed at men, men pursue what it is that makes you feel alive. The pursuit of the damsel in distress, the, 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 the activities that make you really feel alive, Pursue that because, the author said, God, the Bible says that God has written eternity in the hearts of men. And where has he written that? In your desires. Now, I don't, I don't 
think that the author intended this, but what happened was people who, who went around and said, oh, I like that, I'm going to go do that then, because that's what I desire, and especially as a man, that desire is there, and so it, I can't stifle that, because God has written eternity in my heart and in my desires. I need to live for satisfied desire. And so don't tell me to, be, don't, don't tell me to, to, to do and to be obedient, I want to live, I want to be free. Don't tell me heaven's going to be me floating around on a cloud, playing a harp to Jesus. No, I'm going to be climbing a mountain and rescuing somebody and kayaking down a river with Jesus. I remember reading that and seeing what that was doing to people around me and saying, listen, if Jesus wants me to float on a cloud and play a harp, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to float around on a cloud and play a harp. If that's what Jesus wants, that's what I'll do. Yeah, Jesus, I'll play a harp, float on that cloud. But people were saying, no, that's not what my male heart desires. I need to pursue that. We're going to be kayaking down a mountain and killing a deer and doing, I don't know, whatever else we're doing. It didn't hit me until I read an open letter from a Christian counselor to a friend of his who was running headlong into an adulterous relationship. Not just that he had committed adultery and that he had repented of that. That, 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 that happens, and that's to be re rejoiced and repentance and turning back to the Lord. Praise God. And we are to welcome and to be uh, open and, and, and hospitable and, and, and kind of cheerlead anytime one of us sins and returns to the Lord. That is a good thing, not to shun somebody in that sort of a situation, but to welcome and to celebrate and to praise God for those things. But this Christian counselor wrote an open letter to his friend who was running headlong into sin. He didn't mention this book, but I think he was referring to it. Because in the open letter, he mentioned that his friend was... was was he was running away from his family and pursuing a life with his mistress. And here was his reasoning. I've never felt more alive than I do right now. I've never, I've never felt more joy and, and more exhilaration than I do right now. Ergo, that must be what I'm supposed to do. Because I've been told that my desires are needs and then my needs become gods and I follow those and that's when it clicked in my mind <laughs> life isn't meant to be lived just for satisfied desire here we can't live as if heaven and eternity and Jesus aren't real We need this command, those of us who can be unbridled in our desires. Titus, even, even says in Titus, uh, that section where Titus chapter 2, he's talking about older, uh, older men and younger men, older women and younger women. You go back and read that section, the word that he keeps saying uh, to, the, to the older man. He says, Old, older men among a list of things you need to be self-controlled. Older women among a list of things that you need to teach younger women is be self-controlled. Older men teach younger men. He gives them one thing. What do you think it is? One thing for the younger men. Be self-controlled. We need this command because we can be unbridled in our desires. Fourth, so unrighteous, unloving, unbridled, unhappy. Unhappy. Listen to James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
He just grabs two of the Ten Commandments there. I, certainly it's not illegitimate to, that we could say, what causes adultery among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you take. So you lust. So you flirt. So you pursue. So you, you want to be pursued. So that you, you look for affection and attention in the wrong place. Who needs the seventh commandment? Well, it's those of us who are dissatisfied with where we are, with whom we are, with what we have, with when we have it, with God's provision and timing in our lives. Church, if you're married, and somebody after the service grab me and, and say this back to me, if you're married, do not seek attention from and affirmation from someone who isn't your spouse. Do not seek attention from and affirmation from someone who isn't your spouse, whether personally or digitally. That's where seeds are sown for adultery. If you're unmarried, don't buy, in, buy into the cultural lie that your identity is primarily your sexual identity. Or that the pinnacle of human life is the, the sexually fulfilled human life. Jesus was the most human human who ever humaned. And he was never married. That's not where your, your identity lies, and that is not the path to the good life on its own. Who needs this command? The unrighteous, the unloving, the unbridled, the unhappy. Number five, the unwise. People who can be unwise. That's actually, to put it too mildly, but it fit with my paradigm here. Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Who needs this command? People who are stupid. People who are foolish. People who are naive. Proverbs 6 actually says it's like taking a bunch of hot coals and carrying them close to your chest and expecting your clothes not to catch on fire. Proverbs 6 says it's like walking barefoot across hot coals and expecting your feet not to get burned. It's It's foolish. And so we are foolish. We need this. God gives this command because that's us. We need to be reminded of the paths of righteousness. Now listen, as we transition to the third point and how we're going to, to, to think about application a little bit, let, let me add one more to that, right? Unrighteous, unloving, unbridled, unhappy, unwise. But listen, not unforgiven. <laughs> not unforgiven. None of us are too far gone. None of us have screwed up too badly. Certainly not your pastors. I began this point with 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. I intentionally held verse 11 until now. Some of you might have been like, what about verse 11? Here it is, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. This is after he talks about the unrighteous one inherit the kingdom of God, neither the, 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 those who have uh, sexual immorality or drunkards or swindlers or greedy or homosexual behavior, like none of those people inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 says this and such were some of you and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God <laughs> praise the Lord 
So, so we see this command, and, and, and hopefully all of us, again, we, we all have different backgrounds and different experiences, we're coming from different places. I want us all to hear that command and say, I need it. I need it. We all do. Because we can be unrighteous and unloving and unhappy and unwise and all of those things, but we also know that, that it's not that we are unforgiving. That any of us in our sin, we, 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 we are all broken people. We are all sexually broken people. We are all... We are all in the same state before God, but we come for him, just all beggars looking for mercy. Knowing that we are washed and cleansed by a good God who welcomes us. Well, that sets us up, I think, to consider our final point. What does obedience to this look like? What does obedience to this look like? What will keep us from adultery? What will keep us from sexual immorality? What will keep us from lust? I'll mention a, a list of things here. Some of them rather quickly, some of them will dwell on a, a bit more in-depthly. But number one, let God define love and marriage. Let God define love and marriage. Whether it's same-sex relationships or divorce with no biblical warrant or polyamory, which is a thing gaining in popularity, Love will never lead us to disobey God. Love is love if we get to define every word in that sentence. Love will not lead us to disobey God. So let God define love and let God define marriage. Number two, enjoy God and the relationships he's given. Enjoy God and the relationships he's given. We must awaken our affections for Christ by enjoying him more and more. We've mentioned this before in sermons, but there's a great Puritan sermon by a guy named Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you haven't read that, I would recommend you reading it. You can find the full PDF of the sermon online. The Expulsive Power of the New Affection. By the time you're done with the first page, you'll get his point. <laughs> The expulsive power of a new affection means that, that, that we in our lives, we, we are wired as people who, who love. God has created us as lovers. God has created us to desire. And the reason we choose sin is because we love it. Deep down somewhere in here, we, we always choose what we love. And then the more we choose it, the more we love it. And so Chalmers in that sermon is saying that there is one affection that has the power to expel the expulsive power of a new affection. Because what we can't do is just replace affections. We, we, we can't be in the business of just removing affections. Oh, I struggle with pornography. Well, let me put things in my life to remove that temptation from my life and leave this void. Something else is going to come in there. Either lustful looks around town or some other sin, pride, drunkenness. Something else is going to come in and fill the void. And Chalmers is saying you can't, you can't be in the business of just removing affections. You have to replace them. And you have to replace them with a greater love. What is the greater love? It's Jesus. The expulsive power of a new affection. There's one greater love that will push out and tamp down and put in proper context and proper position all of the other loves that are vying for that place of, of, of prime affection in our lives. We have to enjoy God and love Jesus. So we awake our affections for him by enjoying him through private devotions, through public worship, through personal relationships. We were created to treasure Christ 
far more so than all the other things that we enjoy in life, and we must stir up those affections for the things of Christ. A growing love for Christ is the only thing that can replace and push out all of the lesser loves that strive for a place in our hearts and our minds. We must see Jesus as sweetness and beautiful and enjoy him. For those who are married, I said enjoy God and the relationships that he's given. For those who are married, enjoying the gifts and the privileges of marriage are vital as we seek to pursue purity and stay away from infidelity. We must enjoy God and also enjoy the spouse he's given us. We should pursue spiritual and sexual and emotional intimacy. Spiritual intimacy in reading and praying and discussing things and ministering together and evangelism together and discipleship together. Spiritual things together that will breathe life into your marriage. Sexual intimacy. God has given sex to be a gift that brings husband and wife together in a most intimate way. And negligence here on our part within marriage will only lead to more difficult temptations. Emotional Learn to talk and to communicate and to listen and to empathize and share what you're feeling. Open up and be intimate and honest with each other. Number three, take drastic measures. Take drastic measures. In Matthew 5, we've read it twice this morning already. You may have seen that image of Jesus saying, tear your eye. If your eye's calling you to sin, tear your eye out. Your hand's calling you to sin, cut it off. Your arm's calling you to sin, you know, cut it off. Your legs are calling you to sin, cut them off. It's better to enter into heaven, missing an eye or missing a body part, than to be thrown into hell. I think the point there is that we are to take drastic measures. We are to take extreme steps to safeguard ourselves. We, however, often argue that if our help isn't coming from the second point, then it's not worth it. Right, the second point, love God, love Jesus, enjoy that sp the spiritual disciplines, all that kind of stuff. We think, oh, if, I, if I'm doing these other things, it's just a band-aid. It's not really going to get me where I need to go. So I don't, I don't need the filter on my computer because if I, if I need to rely on the filter on my computer, then I'm not really obeying God enough. Jesus said, tear out your eye. Nobody said, well, Jesus, that's a little extreme. That, that doesn't really solve the problem if I'm not really loving you. And he says, fight with everything you've got. So yeah, love Jesus, love God, build those things up, stir those affections, but then take whatever else steps we need to take. Take those drastic measures. So we think it's not, it's not genuine or it's just a band-aid or it's legalism. Jesus didn't think so, friends. He says, fight with every weapon you have. Lock down your devices. Get rid of the apps. Request a different shift. Go to a different gym. Don't travel alone. Change your commute. Don't watch that show. All of that's better than tearing out an eye. That's where Jesus took it. There's a, gosh, this isn't in my notes, so I'm probably going to misquote it. I'll do it anyway. All right. Uh, John, uh, John Piper's a message I heard John Piper uh, give one time. Maybe you've heard this. This thing is, it's, it's burned uh, in my memory, at least the, the image, but he, he tells a story, and it's kind of a parable of these three men who are standing before a pit, and he said it's the pit of uh, internet pornography and lust, and the men are standing there, and there's a cord that is tied around them. This cord, is, it's like, a, it's like a, a metal cable that's tied around them, and, and somebody's adding weight and throwing it in. Every temptation is another weight added onto the end of that cable that's going over the cliff into the pit, and at first it's, it's 10 pounds. 
and then it's 20 pounds, and the first guy is there, and it's, it's 20 pounds, and he's fighting, and he, he's, he's trying to resist. It's 20, it's 25 pounds. Click. Into the pit he goes. And Piper says, the second man comes up. The cord is wrapped around him, and the weight is thrown over the cliff, and it's, he, he resists a little bit longer. It's, it's, it's 15 pounds. It's 20 pounds. It's 25 pounds, and he's, he's it's starting to cut into his skin a little bit, and it's 30, 35 pounds. Click. Over the cliff he goes. The third man comes and the weight is added on and it's thrown over the cliff and, and, and he, he, he's, he's there and it's cutting into his skin and he's bleeding and he's 50, 75, 100 pounds, finally snap. He resisted and the rope snaps. I don't know if I got the image exactly right. It's something along those lines as Piper tells the story. But what I do remember after he tells that parable, you could, you could hear a pin drop in the audience where he was giving this address. And Piper yells out. He yells out. He says, any soldiers out there? Anybody got blood on his shirt? He says, show me some scars before you talk about the power of sin. Don't show me your broken ankles. I want to see blood. He said, those who gave up at 30 pounds don't even know the power of sin. He says, you didn't fall, you jumped. You jumped at 25 pounds and you don't have a scar on your body. I remember hearing that message just being slain by that. And knowing deep down in my own heart, that's right, that's right. I want blood on my shirt. I want a church of people who are scarred from holding that line until the rope snaps. Jesus says, tear out your eye, cut off a body part if you need to. Number four, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. You may be familiar with the, the famous line from John Owen, the Pur uh, English Puritan. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sinner will be killing you. It's from his famous work, a book called On the Mortification of Sin. Uh, the, the, the putting to death of sin. And it's all based off of Romans 8.13, which says this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Friends, sexual sin doesn't just happen. We, we don't, I know we use these usements. We don't fall into it. We don't slide into it. We don't stumble into it. It's the result of hundreds of other decisions in our lives that leads to it. In another work, not on the mortification of sin, Owen has another famous uh, book called On Temptation. If you want, actually, at the evening service tonight, Garrett's going to give away two free copies of On Mortification of Sin and On Temptation. If you're interested in reading those, they're fabulous. But in another book called On Temptation, John Owen argues, he says, we can't, we, we can't say that we hate sin. We all want to say we hate sin, right? I hate sin. Owen says, you can't say you hate sin if you don't hate temptation to it. We can't say we hate sin if we don't also hate the temptation unto it. Here's the Owen quote. He hates not the fruit who delights in the root. He hates not the fruit who delights in the root. I need that reminder so much in my life because it's so easy to say I hate sin, but yet I'm making these little decisions over here that, that don't show that I hate the temptation to it. 
So I can't say I hate the thing itself, but I don't also hate the temptation unto it. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Number five, slow down. Slow down. Our sin is the result of hundreds of concessions, which is true, which in the moment leads us to act on desire and emotion and a passion rather than on truth. If I can just slow down and focus on what is true, it is of incredible help. Specifically, Christians, I, I, I want to I implore you to think of two things. I am dead to sin, and there's a way out. I am dead to sin, and there's a way out. The first thought comes from Romans chapter 6, which is a fascinating passion, passage to me. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 6. is this massively important chapter where Paul talks about our union with Christ, about the newness of life that we have in Jesus, about how our old self was crucified with him, how we're no longer slaves to sin, and on and on and on. Uh, uh, and, and, and in that beautiful chapter about our union with Christ and our position, you know what the command is that he gives us? Here's the command. Consider. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not, not even be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The command that Paul gives is consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've thought about that for, for dozens of hours and I still don't know if I've worked it over. Consider what does it mean in that moment to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, the next verse says, Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. But the command is to consider, to think, to conceive of yourself in a certain light. To, to stop and to think and say, that action is off limits. Why? Because I am considering myself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That conversation is inappropriate. Why? Because I am considering myself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That, that form of media, and, uh, it, that is, I, I can't do it. It's off limits. Why? Because I am dead to sin and I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The command that Paul gives is think. Think about it. Consider. Mull it over. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. You, Christian, are dead to sin. You don't have to obey it anymore. You are dead to sin, and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. He is your master. You are his slave. You do not have to be the slave to your sin. Consider yourself as such, dear saint. Stop. Slow down. In the moment, if you can, slow down and say, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus, and there is a way out. We've already read this. He promised this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, there, there is no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Slow down. Consider. Number six, help each other. Help each other. Give and receive help. Now listen, purity, modesty, accountability, friends, those are good things. Let me say it again. Purity, modesty, accountability, those are good things. Those are biblical concepts. Those are virtues in the Christian life. Now, they've been abused 
And many people have been wounded by this concept as those concepts have been misapplied and, and, and misapplied unbiblically and unbiblical teaching that's come along with that. But friends, we only hurt ourselves if we abandon them as virtuous. Friends, the way that you speak with each other and the way that we present ourselves to each other is part of the way that we will fight alongside of each other and pursue holiness together. Now listen, that doesn't mean, here's what I don't mean by that, that doesn't mean that somebody else's sin is your fault. That, that, that's not true. That's a lie. We are all responsible for our own actions. So when someone lusts after you, that doesn't mean that you exist as a walking stumbling block. And that your body is evil. And if your spouse sins against you in an emotional or physical adultery or lust or pornography, it's not your fault. You didn't do this. It's not your fault because you, you didn't do that action or this action. It, we are all called to holiness. We are all called to obedience. We are all responsible for our own actions. So make no mistake there. All I'm arguing for here in this point of helping one another is that we ought to pray for hearts that would see how we can help one another in our actions and in our speech and our own hearts. What does it look like to pursue personally and provide for others in purity and modesty and accountability? Finally, confess. Confess and live in light of the gospel. One of the beauties of Psalm 51 in light of David's sin that he says, God, against you and only you have I sinned. He, he comes undone before God in confession of his sin. Grievous, weighty, horrendous sin. But he comes clean before God and he confesses it before him. And friends, that is what we are all meant to do is to confess and live in light of the gospel. And any failings return to the gospel again and again. First John 2, maybe this would be a promise you would cling to and place that you would run to first john 2 my dear children i write this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin my children i write this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin we have one who speaks to the father in our defense jesus christ the righteous one he is the propitiation for our sins which means he took god's wrath for our sins on his own body that we by believing in him might be saved so for those of you who are sitting out there like me who's listening to the same material and saying, oh my goodness, I've messed it up so badly. This text says, I, he's, I write this that you don't sin, but if you do, we have Jesus. But if you do, we look to him who is our mediator. We look to him who is our, the satisfaction of God's wrath and we know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we cling to that promise. I close with a story from my own life. I didn't become a Christian until I was 18 and didn't grow up following biblical morality. And when Kim and I were dating, I, I knew, well, I always knew, it was more real whenever Kim and I were dating, I, I knew that there was going to come a moment when we would have to have a, a talk about uh, my life and about my sin and, and about all the baggage that I was bringing. <clears throat> and so I, I, could, I, could take you, I could take you to the place we were sitting. We were in Denton, Texas, right outside of our church. Uh, there was a, a church service that we were going to, an evening service. And I remember 
I remember sitting on this step right outside of the church. The, 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 I had kind of shuffled my feet and kind of gone back and forth. I, I knew I had this talk, and I was like, I'm doing it tonight. We're going to have this conversation. Uh, delayed long enough that I could, we, I could still hear the saints in, in door. Every time the door would open, people were singing. The service had started, and we sat down to have a conversation. I said, hey, there's some stuff I need to, I need to tell you. Before we go any further in this relationship, I knew we were headed towards uh, engagement and marriage, and, and I, I wanted her to, to kind of know who I was and, and all of this, and I thought about it and prayed about it, so, so we had the conversation, and I lay my soul bare and uh, didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> One of those moments where you're like, this could go multiple directions, and uh, Kim reaches into her bag, and she pulls out a Bible, and turns to Luke chapter 7. And, uh, and she said, I, I always, I mean, and she had, she had heard me give my testimony enough, like this wasn't like, oh my goodness. She had heard me tell my story in front of tons of people, knew kind of my background. So she had heard that enough. But she said she had always prayed that God would give her the words to say to me when we had, she was like, I always knew this conversation was coming. I pray that God would give me something to say whenever it happened. And she says, I think this is what he gave to me. So she opens up to Luke chapter 7. She reads uh, Luke chapter 7. There's a story in here. If, if you have your, your Bible, it says, it's in, uh, starting in verse 36 of Luke 7. The heading in my Bible says, uh, a sinful woman forgiven. The story there is about this woman who falls at Jesus' feet and she's weeping. And the Pharisees in, in who's, uh, th- that are there, they, they're like, Jesus, if you knew what type of woman this was, you would say something. If you knew the kind of sin that it says that she was a woman of the city. If you knew who she was and what she's done, that would change everything. And Jesus, knowing the hatred and the judgment that was in their hearts, says, let me tell you a story. He says, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The guy with the little debt or the guy with the big debt? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Kim put her Bible away. He says, I, I know you'll be able to love me much. I know you'll be able to love me much because of what you've been forgiven.
Friends, when I say live in light of the gospel, that's what that looks like. She gospeled me. And I did what I'm doing now. I broke down weeping. Walking into church, people are like, what in the world just happened? Uh, but how good is that? I scratched out in my Bible the heading that some Bible publisher put there. It's not original in the Greek text. It's added by Bible publishers later. Scratched out sinful woman, and I wrote loving woman. Because as Jesus tells the story, that's his perspective. Look at how much she can love because of what she's been forgiven. Friends, I, some of us in here this morning are the, the broken, sinful woman. Some of us are the boastful, judgmental Pharisees. Some of us reading the story feel like we're, we're at, maybe, maybe we're, we're outside of that. And we haven't even entered into the scene yet as one of the characters. Praise the Lord. All of us need Jesus. And when the guilt and the shame rise back up in your life, use it as a prompt to remember how much you've been forgiven and therefore how much you were able to love. We who have been forgiven much can love much. We who pursue purity will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Friends, God delights in and provides for your purity and for your fidelity. Let's continue to worship him and trust him all the more. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, what uh, weighty text. Who knew that two words of Hebrew scripture could, could just cause us to be undone? And then brought back to Jesus again. God, I pray for that in our lives. I pray that Jesus would be big. God, help us. Help us if we are towing the line of this in disobedience. Help us help one another. Help us run this race together as a church. God, would you strengthen us by your spirit for the life that you call us to. We praise you that we are dead to sin and we are alive in Christ Jesus. We praise you that he is the propitiation for our sins. And no matter what we've done or where we've come from, we have hope in him if we trust in his blood shed for us. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.